you build a company that from the beginning is a multinational, multicultural organization trying to fundamentally change the way business usually gets done? In this episode of Butt Movers, I talk with Richard Sams, the CEO and founder of Mohara, a tech company that is changing the way that startups are able to, well, start. Richard shares with us how Mahara punches above their weight to get the best possible people to drive their team forward, and also how relentlessly improving communication is the key to leading this fast-growing, fast-changing organization. Join us on this episode of Button First. So I am here today with Rich Sams. Do you want to be Rich or Richard? As long as I'm not Rick or Dick, I'm, okay. I'm happy. Yeah, Rich okay. is fine. Yeah. Okay, so I am here with, I am here today with Rich Sams, who is the CEO and founder of Mahara, which is a venture partner that invests in tech startups and works with corporates to build innovative products. We so, do. welcome, Rich. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, to kick off, can you just tell us a little bit more about um, Mahara and, and the story to to lead it to where it is today? Sure. So, um, we uh, well, I, f- I founded a company called Say Digital in 2010 um, in Bangkok. The main focus of that business was to uh, to come back to the UK to get UK clients from London or Brighton. And then have the engineering work carried out in um, in Bangkok. So that's basically building websites. Very very simple. We kind of did that. Grew that for about four or five years to a team of fourteen or so. Um, and uh, I kind of got a little bit, I guess, a little bit bored of the churn of everything. Yeah. You know, kind of trying to get new work all the time. And the first um, first client I ever had, a chap called Ben Blomley, who's now my co-founder of Mahara as it stands. Um, he, uh, he had a startup and we worked with him from 2011. He was the first uh, cornerstone client, as he likes to be called. Right. Um, and uh, about 2015, I had this business model for how we could invest in startups and take equity and try and fix what is a very broken startup scene in London. And in um, 2016, we decided to go into business together, 50-50, um, and then started what is a, you know, is a venture partner stroke hybrid tech investor. So it's a uni- fairly unique business model. Um, We've since invested in 25 startups, got a team of 45 now, um, just opening up in Cape Town, obviously in Bangkok, still London, and uh, looking to push on into our plan 2020, which is quite big and that involves America. So it's been a, it's been a quick journey from 2016 when we founded Mahara um, as its current incarnation. Um, it's exciting. Yes, so huge growth trajectory. Yeah. So just curious, you had mentioned um, as you were developing Mahara this talking about sort of fixing a broken startup scene. Tell mm. me a bit more about that. Right, so if you're a, I don't know whether this is the case, I don't think the UK is unique in this. I think yeah. I'm finding it definitely in the East Coast of America as well. If you're, a, if you're a non-technical co-founder and you're looking to build out your idea or you're looking to you know, start a startup business in technology or enabled by technology, you've got a couple of options. You either try and find a technical co-founder, an individual to come into business with you, um, or you employ an agency. Mm-hmm. Now the problems there is that on the freelancer side of things, you're um, you're basically competing against them being able to start their own startup. They could go and work for Facebook, they could go and work for Google, they could go and work for any mm-hmm. business because these people are in demand because engineering is a is a um, is a restricted skill set basically. Mm-hmm. Not, there's not enough of them around, so you can put all your eggs in one basket and go and get that single technical co-founder. Mm-hmm. Very very difficult to find. Invariably, will probably want thirty to fifty percent of the business, mm-hmm. and you still have to pay quite a high salary because of the the you know, developed market of where you're currently looking. And the other side of it is an agency, and an agency is um, 
basically driven by margin. So they're looking at day rates. So they're incentivized to make sure that they make a profit on a day rate that they charge a startup mm-hmm. founder. So what you have is you have an issue where you've got a concentrated risk on the individual side and then a non-aligned risk on the um, on the agency side. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very difficult for non-technical co-founders to to find people to go and build these businesses with a, a, you know, an equity and financial cost that they can bear. Right. So that's where we step in. And yes. that's what we... I've tried to be, well, it's what we're fixing and in the process of fixing because yeah. we definitely think it's broken. Yeah. So would you say that's kind of the, the change that Mahara is trying to make in the world is trying to fix this broken startup system where if you've got a great idea, but not the tech, you know, to back it up before you're sort of, or currently for a lot of people, you're sort of stuck in this situation where you're stuck between putting all your eggs in one basket, getting a freelancer who then will want more and it's maybe not a great model moving forward or you're beholden to these agencies who are in it for themselves, right? And so your goal, the goal of Mahara, is to be able to, to change that landscape. Yeah. Super exciting. Yeah. And some successes already, obviously, you know, moving from what you had said, um, from 14 people to a team of 45, yeah. and you've worked with 25 startups now, and yeah. you're, you're opening more global offices. Yeah. And so I imagine over the past couple of years in this journey, mm. you know, you're coming up against some pretty like, entrenched models of this is how yeah. we've always done things. Mm-hmm. So I imagine in the journey of building up Mahara, yeah. you've run into what I've been calling butts, right? People yeah. raise the but we can't whatever because of whatever. So can you maybe tell tell a story of, of one of these challenges yeah. that you came up against? Yeah, sure. I mean, we, we operate an onshore offshore model. Um, so okay. it's a distributed model. So basically, we um, we call it hubs and satellites internally. So a satellite is is a, a place where you could rub shoulders with your startup co-founders. So you can actually go and sit in the room with them. You can strategize. You can work on product. That's London, or was originally Brighton, and is now London. And our, our hubs are where our engineering takes place. So that was originally Bangkok, and now Cape Town, and, and it's going to be Medellin, hopefully at the end of the year as well. <clears throat> so the you know the, the butt that people came at was um, people's perception of onshore offshoring mm-hmm. you know because there was a you know certainly in the mid to late 2000s there was a there was a big negative movement um, about people mismanaging you know work that's came out of say India traditionally or, or could have been out of you know or China or somewhere like that mm-hmm. um, and it's it had this big big stigma when I went back to the UK in 2011 and it was like oh you're never going to be able to pull that off you can't you can't pretend you cannot work with people in you know in the in, in in Asia or Southeast Asia and make this work because there's mm-hmm. a cultural difference, there's a time difference, and you won't be able to do it. So I'm curious, both in terms of you as an individual and as a leader, and in terms yeah. of how the organization navigated that, because basically you're coming up against a belief, mm. maybe a, an untrue belief, but an assumption that people have about the value of the kind of model that you were you were pushing, right? Yeah. And it's easy. Um, to come up against something like that and to be like, you know what, they're right. Maybe let's think about not doing the entourage. Let's, let's change our model. Mm. And instead, you persevere through it, right, yeah. to success. Yeah. And so I'm curious how you sort of persevered in those you know, early days when mm. maybe it would have been easy to just say, you know what, maybe let's, let's actually change the model. And how mm. maybe you got some of those early adopters to build those early success stories. In terms of leadership, it was... Um the first, the first, the early years, it was it was fairly straightforward. And coming from a teaching background, you know, yeah. you're forever you're forever kind of like learning and giving instruction, and you know, kind of shaping a direction of where you want things to go. So I think that helped. Um, but I don't think it was ever really defined. You know, I didn't. I don't yeah. think I ever read a leadership book for like four years. I just kind of floated along, did what I thought was appropriate, and we we steadily grew. But you know, if it wasn't for the startups at the beginning, 
you know, I would have been banging my head against the wall trying to get into these companies that just thought we were just too risky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we persevered. Yes. And proved and to, it. Yeah, and to persevere, you have to find, I guess, the early people who are willing to, to try it out with you mm. and maybe look for a different profile than maybe what you'd originally started out looking at. And then is that what brought you to, to startups? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was that, I mean, I'd always had ideas of what I wanted to build. So I was quite entrepreneurial anyway, even when yeah. I was still in education. I think the the profile of the people that came through the door was just just a just a cause of network, you know, because mm-hmm. I came back to the UK and I had a network of friends in the, you know, in the kind of the banking or the finance sector, um, and then I just really pounded the streets to go and talk to like Bright, uh, Brighton Council and stuff like that, and then they bought into this thing about a Brighton digital agency that wanted to do good stuff and etc. etc. A lot of talking, uh, yes. you know, a lot of a lot of that kind of stuff, but it was it was mainly mainly because of network. And so from those early days to, to now, so just curious in, in terms of the, this next phase of Mahara's development, yeah. what were some of the next challenges that came up once you had those first couple successful adopters and you were able to mm. build that profile? Yeah. What, what was next? I think the, the, the biggest shift of what we had was in about 2015, so yeah. about four years in, when I started to get a little bit more ambitious about what we were going to do. I never wanted a lifestyle business, but I think it really, it really got going in 2014-15. Um, and I brought on a couple of people into the business, uh, you know, that I would hope I hoped would change the direction of it to allow me to go and do this this model that we've got now. Whilst I'd, I'd got to a certain point with what I was capable of doing, I was very good on the computing side. I had big vision for what I wanted to do, but I think I think myself from 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 education, everything that I had, I lacked a certain backbone of business understanding mm-hmm. to a certain degree, mm-hmm. and that's what Ben brought in with his MBA from INSEAD, you know, and, and mm-hmm. we were good friends and everything. So it was a it was a real step change then, but you know, and that was 2016, and then we had a very clear vision. Now I had a clear vision of what I wanted to do, and I presented it to Ben. He was just like, "Look, mate, I love that. Let's yeah. let's go and do this together." And then because there was two of us, we were able to you know share the load and really go for it. Mm-hmm. And that was 2016, and then the last three years has just been. It's been a bit of a case of hanging on, really, because it's gone very, very quickly for us. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting because in whatever people are trying to do, mm. a lot of times we all hit that like personal capability, personal capacity, personal limit, yeah. right? Of like, I've got this great idea and this is what I'm able to do. And, yeah. and then you have to get to a point where you've got to get the right people absolutely with you yeah. otherwise you're you're stuck yeah yeah I mean and I, I knew that and I, I knew from early doors that I needed someone because every successful company that I was looking to kind of to match always founded with two or three co-founders mm-hmm. you know and I was trying to push this out on my own and I think when the opportunity came round, right timing for Ben right timing for me it was um you know, I didn't. I didn't, didn't second guess it. We mm. both just knew that this was this was the team to go and take this forward. And we've we've for always tried to surround ourselves by people who are different or better than us. Mm. And that's mm. you know, never be um, never have any ego with it or anything like that. It's yeah. just like what is the what's the vision of this company and what are the best people we can do to bring in to 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 get where we want to go. And we're we've we've had a step change the last year of the quality of people we've attracted. Yes, which is wicked. Yes. Yeah. And how how have you? Uh, managed to bring that about because I think that's a really interesting shared challenge that a lot of organizations as they yeah. grow and scale have right it's like getting yeah. the right people yeah. in the right places to do the right things like yeah. that that is key so how how have you and Ben done that how have you gotten the right people yeah um, in terms of bringing in the caliber of people I mean we punch way above our weight for what we should be able to attract mm-hmm. and I think it's because we, we we sell the dream of what we're trying to do you know it's a mission mm-hmm. it is very much a mission it's not 
you know, it's not we're not like a straightforward VC or anything like that. That's just in it for the money. We we want to actually change how startups are um, startups are built and shift that scene. And I think that resonates mm. you know, because mm-hmm. there's an emotional part to it. Yes. And it's a human part. And I think we attract people because we we sell the dream of what we're trying to do, and people people drink it and yeah. they like it, right? Yeah. I think it is just selling that dream. Yeah. Being very open and very honest about it and say, this is what we're trying to do, guys. Do you want to come on the journey or not? Yeah. Yeah, and being really authentic to that, right? Because, of course, you're a company and you're there to make a profit. And mm. the only way you're going to bring people on board, punching above your weight, as, you, as you've as put it, yeah. is to be able to tap into something much deeper than that. Yeah, yeah and, that, and that's, I mean, that drives everything, though. All of the sales that I used to be able to do was was just through, I, we never, I never believed in our, uh, like, written documents, and it sounds crazy, but I ne- we never really do pitch documents. We don't, right. we know, if we see, if we see a job opportunity, we don't, we don't go and submit a, an RFP or anything else like that. We try and get in the room with them and have a chat, yeah. and we talk about what we're trying to do. We talk about how we can affect or help what they're trying to achieve. Yeah. And through that discussion, we begin to shape, you know, a partnership. Yes. So it's, we've always had that running through, you know, the DNA of what we do. It's, ne- you know, we're not corporate in the way we do things we like to connect with people and build long-term relationships and that runs through everything from the way that we talk to our team and attract you know or recruit to you know finding startup investments or corporates to work with you yeah. know it's all about partnership um and that's just through getting on with people yes you know so at the heart of it being a nice person who can get on yeah. with people be honest about what it is that yeah. you're trying to do and yeah. so i guess in thinking about um what we've been talking about and as you've grown and as you've continued to grow, mm. I'm curious, especially as you've, for example, been opening new offices, mm. um, some of the challenges that may have arisen or has it just all been smooth sailing and <laughs> yeah, nothing, <laughs> nothing, and rainbows? It's never, never. Always, <laughs> there's a few rainbows in there, but no, it's, um, it's never easy. I think the hardest, um, well, do you know, I think the most important thing is consistency. Yeah. That's absolutely it. Consistency and messaging and making sure that whatever Ben and I push out into the business that we just stand behind it yes. and we constantly deliver it because it's very difficult to get get the, get that vision over yeah consistency mm. that's what it's all about mm-hmm. you know and we're mm-hmm. quite we're flat hierarchically mm-hmm. um, you know they've you know I would very much want you know a junior engineer or a junior designer to be able to pick up the phone and, and you know and talk and have no kind of hierarchy to it I mean there's obviously a little bit yeah. But it, we don't, we try to keep as flat as possible, yeah. and I think I think that helps as well. So it's, it's a very social company mm. as much as we can be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our Slack channels are, are hilarious. Some of the stuff that gets shared, and right. it's all it's people's personal lives, and it's everything. You know, it's it's really good. Um, and that's interesting because because in thinking about as organizations grow and as they scale. Mm. You know, that through line of like, how do you make sure that it, the right things are scaling, right? And the right things are, are being consistent in terms mm. of the, the mission and being true to your vision. Um, and I'm curious how you are, are leading that moving forward. Yeah, I mean, we're trying to, it's a less communication, right? That's huge. You've got to over communicate yeah. is, yeah. is the thing. And, and no matter whether, it, you know, if you've said it 10 times, you've probably said it half as many times as you need to say it. Yeah. Um, so we've uh, we just switched. We used to have something called Mahara Massive, which was a, an all hands company meeting every two weeks. And it was very, um, it was led by me and it was half an hour long. Mm-hmm. But I just found it was just, I was just basically just talking to the crowd. It was not interactive enough. So we just switched to what we're calling Mahara All Hands, which is on Monday mornings. Um, and on Thursdays and Fridays of the previous week, we, we gather uh, what we call Mahara Admiration, and that's where people get to say what the, what someone good in the company's done, 
and then I, you know, we display that and share that with the whole company on Monday mornings. We get special topics, um, which is where any business leader, anyone in the business can have two minutes to talk about an initi- initiative that they're working on. Um, and it's not doesn't have to be just leadership, it can be anything. You know, it could be you know, someone's doing something on a particular framework they want to talk about. So it's, it's, I'm trying to take it away from you know, CEO, COO, distributed. I'm trying to make it much more all hands, everybody's together. Yes, but have you noticed any impact yet? I've noticed that, but I mean, the admiration stuff's great. Yeah. I mean, that is, we, we had, in week one, we had five, uh, and this week we had over 20 of people going in off wow. their own accord, just saying, you know, I want to give so-and-so this badge for this this piece of work, and they describe what it was, and, and then they're all pumped up on the screen, and everybody can see it, and it's quite, yeah, it's, it's really good to see people, you know, patting each other on the back. And, yes. and getting that recognition. Yes. So I've seen, I've seen that. That's really, really good. And it's quite interesting to see because you get it from different offices. Yes. And because you can't just go around and say thanks for that, buddy. You know, because it's in London to, to to Bangkok or Cape Town, to actually see that recognition is great. So that's very, very positive. And we're getting a good, we're getting good feedback from these this special topics piece because that's yeah. that's trying to say that as we grow, everybody's got their own kind of direction of what they're trying to shift in the business. Yeah. Uh, particularly around product and production at the moment. And it's a great opportunity for them to talk to the whole business as well, rather mm-hmm. than um, rather than just through you know Slack chat. So, I think it's going to have a positive impact. I really do. Yes. Mm. Yes. And it's. I think it's an interesting example because again, I think no matter what your organization is out to do, those similar challenges. You know, how do you shift from top-down sort of communication yep. and helping people to to own their work and to give recognition mm. and create a culture in which people are noticing the positive things yep. that are going on and to develop the expertise within your team. Yep. That everyone's looking for ways to do that, right? So this is a really interesting method for mm. how, how you're testing it out and, yeah. and, and what'll come of it. Yeah, I mean, we're forever looking at different ways to, to improve, I yes. guess. Learn and improve. Whenever we... Um, like we give a copy of Black Box Thinking to people. Okay. I don't know if you know that book. No, tell me more about it. Basically, yeah. celebrating failure. Yeah. That's one of our biggest things, um, which is very, very difficult in Bangkok, actually, because of culture. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, you do not put your hand up here and say you've made a mistake. No. You know, it's not something that the culture does, or people in this culture do. But um, celebrating failure was a kind of an initiative that we tried in 2017, 2018. It fell so flat here. Yeah. Because you just couldn't get Bangkok to do it. It's a yes. bit better now, certainly with the senior leadership. But... We, we want people to celebrate failure because if we understand what has gone wrong, we can therefore change our processes or change the way we do things to make sure that we've learned from it. And the, I mean, it's an incredibly well, well-read book, but it's essentially about the aviation industry against the healthcare industry. Mm. Healthcare industry doesn't learn at the pace the aviation industry learns. Mm-hmm. And that's why you know, aviation in terms of safety has improved you know, exponentially over mm-hmm. the many years. So every problem that we face, like that startup I spoke about earlier that we ended up separating from, mm. you know, we learned from that and we analysed it and we, you know, we did, you know, root cause on that mm-hmm. and we've lost a couple of engineers recently who are remote um, they're in Bangkok but they're remote so they're part of the nomadic team and we've lost them as well and you know me and Ben were chatting about it on Friday it's like right what's the root cause as to why that person wasn't integrated mm. what went wrong there because mm. um, we you know we're trying to build a, a nomadic team to as a kind of a over capacity mm-hmm. and we've got a couple of engineers in Mexico and one in um, one in the Ukraine mm-hmm. and it's very very important for us to 
to kind of understand what went wrong with those two guys so that we can learn from that and put our hands up and say, right, we did this wrong. Mm -hmm. This is where we think the failures were. Can we make sure that we try and change this and then move forward as a business? Mm -hmm. And we've had, you know, 20 or 30 different things where we've made mistakes because we're finding our own way. But, you know, we, if we don't hold our hands up and admit mistake, you're, you're never going to mm. go anywhere. And it sounds like you've got like some structures in place, um, at least between you and Ben, yeah. for how you do that systematically, right? Because everyone says that, right? Oh, we have to embrace failure. We have to fail yeah. fast. We have to da 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 da. Yeah, it's buzzy. Yeah. It's it's very buzzy. Yeah. And without structures yeah. to actually support the analysis yeah. of failures mm. and then actually integrating those lessons learned into what you do moving forward, yeah. it's just lip service. Yeah. It is, yeah. I mean, we so we tend to so we have a meeting every Monday, Benetton and myself, and we talk about the business and where the problems are or anything that's gone on that happens every Monday, invariably in a pub, and we talk over um, talk over anything that's going wrong, anything that's going right, and anything mm. that we can learn, and then the, and then that filters into the OKRs, mm-hmm. and then that fo- fo- filters into the initiatives that different members of the team do. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got a big push on uh, thinking like a founder and, and product thinking at the moment. Mm. So Tony, our head of product in Bangkok. You know, during my time out here, we've been talking about how can we slowly shift the thinking, mm-hmm. you know, to thinking actually product first. You know, this is your product. You are mm-hmm. an investor. You own this. Mm-hmm. Think of it as though it's your own money. You know, mm-hmm. don't just build because that's what you think you need to build. Mm-hmm. So there's a, you know, and that came out from the fact that we weren't getting the correct product decisions being made by engineering. You know, it's mm-hmm. like there's a problem here. Why have you done it that way? Mm-hmm. Why didn't you go this way? Think, you know. Mm-hmm. And that came from conversations in London. And then we were like, right, well, when I'm in town, I'm going to have a session with Tony for two mm-hmm. or three hours. And he's completely on board. And now he's going to be rolling that out over the next six weeks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, there is a hell of a lot of buzz around that fail fast and lean and all everything else like that. Yes. But it's actually just what we do, you know, because we don't, we, don't we don't want to build a lifestyle business. We're trying to do something proper. Mm-hmm. And we've got to make sure that everything that goes wrong, we try and fix it so it doesn't go wrong again and mm-hmm. again and again. Yes, mm. and to actually take some of these very buzzy words and and put them into practice, right? And yeah. you're you're sort of reaping the rewards of it, yeah. as it were, right? And yeah. it, and it works. Yeah, it if does. You actually, the focus on these things and, and shift in this way, and this focus on shifting thinking of people in your organization mm. um, at a really deep level, and mm. not just being satisfied with that sort of surface level, mm. um, has kind of resonated through a few of the examples that you've given. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the education piece again, isn't it? You've got to, if you're trying to if you're trying to do something and you're trying to change something, you've got and you've got this raft of people behind you. If they're not aligned with what you're trying to do, then it's going to be disjointed. Yes. You know, if we can if we can create, I don't want to. It's kind of like it's not tribal, but it kind of is. It's like a togetherness of what we're trying to do. Yes. And we're all thinking in a similar way. Then we'll be really be able to affect something. I think, yes. particularly in the startup space. Yes. Um, and it's you know it's it's great to see that the new people that have joined at a, se- a leadership level are really really aligned with what we're doing. You mm. know, and they're like they are buzzing to get out there and try and break this scene apart and get it working mm. in the way that we think it should mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. But it goes all the way down to you know a junior project manager that joins from a business degree in Bangkok. You yeah. know, we want to make sure that. You know, our project managers are aligned just as we are. So mm-hmm. then when something goes right or wrong in a project, they can steer their team in the mm-hmm. way that this is how Mahara does it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it, it transcends throughout the whole organization yeah. and forever will, I hope. So we've talked a lot about some of the internal challenges that yep. you've been um, facing and overcoming mm-hmm. in the past couple of years. So just to change gears a little bit, thinking yep. 
more about sort of outfacing challenges. Sure. So as you've tried to shake up the way startups are started, yeah. I imagine there would have been obstacles along the way as well of you know, either potential clients saying, oh, but you can't, whatever, mm. or competitors throwing up uh, different obstacles. Mm. So um, any, any stories or insights to share on, on yeah. that end of things? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've worked really hard to get market fit of what we're trying to do with the, mark, uh, with the, with the kind of people we're trying to work with. Um, and I think the, 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 the biggest challenge at the beginning was around time and, and, and could we realistically dedicate as much time as what's necessary in the, in the technical or the strategic CTO position. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, we finally worked our way through to the conclusion that, you know, if we're going in as a technical co-founder with a startup, they're presuming that we are, well, we do take the role of CTO. Um, in the in the interim or whatever a CTO's role is at a startup because you typically don't need that level of seniority um, we've you know we kind of we figured out that it's not an individual it's, mm. it's a team so when 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 people say oh you haven't got enough time to maybe invest in six to eight startups in a year how could you possibly do the strategy how could you possibly do the build but they're not just buying Ben or I or Etienne or anything like that what they're doing is they're buying a little bit of Ben, they're buying a little bit of me, they're buying a little bit of Etienne, they're buying a lo- you know some design time in Brighton, but then they've also got 30-odd engineers that they can leverage, and that's, you know, 150-plus years of engineering experience, mm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and you look at what else is in the market, you could go and find a, you know, that single freelancer, and they might have eight to ten years experience, mm. but that doesn't, you know, that can't compete with the level of engineering experience we've got. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, you don't buy... You're not buying an individual, you're buying a company. Yeah. You're buying a company's support and that strength. Yes. Um, so we, we faced that a lot at yeah. the beginning. Well, for the first year and a half, we faced that a lot. Until we realized it's just like you're not just buying me or Ben. You know, yes. Whoever is doing that initial meeting. Yes. It's like you've got this army of people that want to make you successful, yes. that are aligned with you, and that will only be successful if you're successful. Yes. Because we don't make any profit on yes. our investments unless we grow that. Yes. Um, so as soon as you can kind of say, we're aligned... There is no profit making here. You've got a whole team of people um, to help you grow this business, and we both prosper if it goes well. Yeah. You know that alignment and the fact that it's more than just an individual yeah. is how we overcame that. But it was, it was, yeah, we had some, we had some really interesting challenges. Yes, and, and that's, I, I think that's so interesting because I mean, you're talking about a, a specific space, yeah. and fundamentally, what it is, it's, it's shifting belief of how a certain thing gets done, mm. right? So before yes. the belief is like, you have to have a CTO and yeah. this is the way you that have a CTO. Perception is still there. Right, and yeah. that's that's what you're trying to shake up now yeah. because a lot of people still have that belief and, yeah. for, and to, to fundamentally shift the way people look at that to be like, oh, I don't need to own a person mm. to do this or have a, not own, but have a person to do this. Absolutely. And so there's a different way to access the kind of skills that I yeah. need yeah. is a fundamental shift in the way people think about starting their startups. Yeah. And I think it's, it's similar to, I mean, there's a lot of literature around like agility and, and shifting from, you know, consuming products to accessing services, right? So the mm. Uber model, like, you know, people don't want to own a car. They want access yeah, to being yeah. able to mm. be mobile. And so it's very aligned with a lot of these other examples and different ways of thinking about how can you build an organization that fills a need in a different way by thinking about the problem differently. De- we definitely face that with the CTO question. I mean, we used to, we used to say that we are... We used to say technical co-founder or CTO, 
we don't put CTO in it now because of the perception of what a CTO is, mm -hmm. because they see that as a single person. Most people see it as a single person, mm -hmm. right? So if, if we go in, if Ben is, is fronting that relationship and doing that, that piece, and he's at the front, they would think Ben is the CTO when Mahara is the CTO. So we've actually stopped positioning it like that. Uh -huh. We don't even really mention it. We call it, um, I can't even remember what it says in the contract, but it's something like a person of value or something like that. Right, right. You know, valuable person in the contract. Um, because there was a perception that we were really fighting against. Yeah. As soon as you take that out and you say that you're a venture partner and we're here to build, work with you to build your venture out, yes. then it, it resonates. Yes. Interesting shift in, in uh, just in phraseology, yes. even though it's the same thing when we said we're a yes. CTO. Yeah, and that is an interesting um, point because it resonates with what we were talking about in terms of internal communication as well, right? Mm. In both cases, it's about you've got the same message mm. and the power of changing the way you deliver that message and changing the media or the means and sometimes changing the actual language of it mm. um, can can shift mindsets and then that can allow you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise yeah. be able to do. Yeah, for sure. And it, it's just now you've highlighted it actually, just thinking about that CTO stuff. That was, that was definitely, definitely in our early negotiations, the biggest part that we got. And we mm -hmm. lost a few, you know, we wanted to invest in two or three at the beginning. Um, one or two that have actually gone to be very successful, so I'm going to rue that. <laughs> um, but we we didn't get there because our messaging didn't come across. Yes, you know, and it didn't it didn't resonate. And yes. you know, ever since we kind of shifted about what we do, now we you know we're in a position where we turn down quite a few now. You mm -hmm. know, we get we get pitched a lot mm -hmm. because we finally have market fit. Mm. It's just communication. Mm -hmm. The model hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. the model hasn't changed at all. How we talk about the model has changed. Mm -hmm. um, but it is going against that perception of. CTO, how could you possibly do that? CTO's got to be dedicated. You know, yeah. you can't do this with a company. It's got to be yeah. a person. Um, yeah, never really thought of it, actually. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Teresa. You're very welcome. <laughs> That's really interesting. That's why I, I think it's interesting to have these conversations, right? Because mm. I think, I mean, I, I know very little. I'm trying to follow, when you get into the more technical pieces of what Mahara does yeah, and yeah. startups, like, this is not at all my world. Mm. And yet, those similar, like, challenges in whatever industry that people face, when yeah. you've got... Teams of people trying to do interesting things in the world or trying to push change. Mm. There's similar challenges, and this whole idea of, of how you like shift perceptions mm. um, is really is really interesting. Well, thank you so much for your you. your time and your insights, um, and it's been great hearing about Mahara and your journey. Thank and you. All the best in your future butt moving. Thank you. I'm gonna move some butts. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on this episode of Butt Movers. I hope some of Rich's insights about how to shift mindsets and communicate both internally and externally have been as helpful and interesting to you as they have been to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please think of one friend who might also like it and send them the link now. Connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at ButtMovers, that's B-U-T Movers, or head over to ButtMovers.com for more on today's episode, including links to finding out more about Mahara and some of the buzzy books and concepts that Rich and I discussed, including Black Box Thinking and Failing Fast. Join me again in two weeks for the next episode, when I have a conversation with Becca Johnson, the executive director of Spin Coalition, a super fun and interesting volunteer community organization that engages people with flow arts. We talk about picking up tips for leadership from improv and the importance of humility and perspective. I hope you and maybe a friend will join me then. And until next time, get out there and move those butts.